Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. In 2020, events have yet again shone a light on racial inequalities across the globe. Australia is not an exception. Twenty years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, You bet you are. Uh, You bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now. Not ever. I mean... These comments are completely inappropriate. I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Face of democracy, very good. To Democracy Sausage. I'm Mark Kenny from the ANU's Australian Studies Institute, and this podcast comes out twice weekly from the good offices of PolicyForum.net at the Crawford School of Public Policy. The world has really taken as much interest in an election as the one about to be decided in the United States this week. Well, hopefully this week. But then there's never been a president quite like Donald Trump. Now, let me just make a few quick points about Donald Trump. Is he a proto-fascist? Now, some people might say that's hyperbole, but consider the evidence. Consider the presidential abuse of judges and the flagrant politicisation of the courts, the abusive demonisation of the fourth estate as enemies of the people, discrediting expertise, the caustic personal belittling of political opponents, the scoffing disdain for science, the dismissal of accountability mechanisms, the dissemination of false information... The positioning of all critics as partisans, the privileging of wealth, the boastful exaggeration of personal and governmental achievements, the total co-option of a political party via intimidation of dissenters, and of course the frontal attack on liberal democratic norms with the express aim of making elections themselves lack legitimacy, and of course throw into that the undisguised voter suppression program as well. Then look at his methods essentially as a ringmaster. Now, remember, in 1927, Joseph Goebbels openly admitted to orchestrating fights in the streets of the German capital, declaring, Berlin needs the spectacular like a fish needs water. And if you look at the way Donald Trump has run this election campaign and just the whole, indeed run the whole four years of his, uh, of his presidency, if that's what you can call it, it has always been about the spectacular. It's been always about the show. And he's been effectively the ringmaster. 
So it raises the question, after such an overheated and intensely partisan campaign, what would an electorally vindicated Donald Trump be like? I think there's fairly strong fears and a reasonable expectation that he would be worse than his first term, more divisive and, let's remember, utterly unburdened by the need to seek re-election. I know this is pretty grim stuff, and perhaps when you're listening to this, we've already you've already heard the answer. It depends when that is, but um, we're recording this a couple of days, really, before we know the outcome of this election, and I think there's a lot of anxiety around, and if there's some in my voice, well, I admit to it. Closer to home, of course, there's the Bushfire Royal Commission, which was released on Friday of last week, and it made a number of representations, sorry, recommendations and observations. And of course, there's been an election fought on COVID ground over the weekend as well, won convincingly by a border policing Labor government. Joining us to discuss this and myriad other issues attached to it are some familiar voices on Democracy Sausage. First up, as usual, is Dr. Maria Teflaga, who is a lecturer at the ANU's School of Politics and International Relations. G'day there, Maria. Hello, Mark. Professor Mark Howden is the Director of Climate Change Institute at the Australian National University and is one of Australia's foremost climate policy experts. G'day, Mark. Welcome back. Morning, Mark. And Dr. Arna Greta Hunter is a physician and a specialist cardiologist with a strong focus on patient-centred care and preventative medicine focus. And uh, importantly, she's also a researcher in the Climate Change Institute. Arna Greta, welcome back. Thanks very much for having me, Mark. Now... I've made obviously a number of incendiary comments about Trump and, you know, feel free to, anyone can uh, can respond to that or weigh in. We can come back to that if you like. Why don't we start with um, with this bushfire Royal Commission because, you know, it, it very much defined the, the last summer. We're just going into a new summer. It's been done very quickly. It's, it's uh, certainly a credit to all concerned that this Royal Commission was uh, was um, enacted, was uh, commissioned, if I can use that term, uh, and that it's a, a huge body of work and it's been done quite quickly ahead of this summer. Anna Greta, what what do you make of the of the body of work that that this Royal Commission has done? Is it a, a credible report, as far as you can tell? Look, it's an extraordinary read, and uh, if you've got a couple of hours spare, I actually recommend people at least skim read their way through the report. Um, 600 pages, the report, 400 of appendix after that. Um, and, and it pa- paints in quite an extraordinary landscape. Uh, climate change is front, centre and all over this report. Uh, I think the Commission is uh, sounding a warning to uh, Australian policymakers that we're ignoring the climate science at our peril. Uh, and that part of the lead up to the bushfire uh, season that we had last year was really uh, we, we were un- so badly un- unprepared because we haven't been listening to the scientists. And so they map out the advantages of listening to science and thinking about forecasting in terms of climate change, the sorts of crises that we might be up against. I think the phrase is that the bushfire season of 2019-20, or that year in which some of us and probably each one of us in this room experienced drought, flood, hailstorms, bushfire and smoke exposure, that that's a glimpse of the future that we may have. And that's in a future that's it's accessible within the lifetime of every one of us in this room today. 
that should be reflected in our policy making. And I, I think that's what I've read out of the report is that they go across an extraordinary breadth. It's the Royal Commission into Natural Disasters. It's not just about bushfires. And it's really asking all elements of government to respond appropriately, particularly in adaptation of climate change. It's really interesting, um, Mark. I mean, you know, we, we we were brought up being told, you know, I love a sunburnt country and, and you know, that, that whole we, – we understand the idea of bushfires. It's been sort of encultured – uh, in Australia for a long time, and yet the report seems to proceed. You know, seems to um, criticise a level of um, insouciance, if I can put it like that, about about the fire threat, given the multiplier of climate change. Look, I, I think the comments that Anna Greta made just now are absolutely pertinent, and and I think reflecting on your start is that yes, we love a sunburnt country, but not the degree of sunburn we're experiencing now mm. and, and projected to experience. And, and the report very clearly laid out um, what is changing in our climate. There was uh, about 14 pages specifically on climate change and climate risk. Um, there was really only one significant recommendation dealing with that, and that was largely about provision of climate projections. Uh, is that a problem? I mean, there, there has been some commentary that Climate change didn't feature enough in the report. Yeah, I think it, it, it. I don't think it did in the recommendations, but I think it did in the report itself. So, so doing a quick word search, uh, climate occurred three hundred and fifty-five times across the report. You know, that's a fairly strong coverage uh, in terms of the report, and 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 that just reflects the fact that uh, fire risk in Australia is very, very closely aligned to climate factors. And if our climate changes, then the fire risk changes. We we understand that at a very basic level it's it's very fundamental and unfortunately the direction of change is to increasing risk and we've already seen that and the projections are for far more increases in risk and that really for me reflects the the biggest failing of this report in terms of climate change it's not that it didn't cover it in the text it's just that it didn't cover it in the recommendations largely because i think it was outside the terms of reference mm. and so the the fundamental issue here is that in terms of climate change it, it addresses the symptoms not the causes and and the symptoms uh, and the cause is fundamentally greenhouse gas emissions, and it was silent on those. But isn't that Maria? Because in a sense, even if that even if that's completely right, the government is, is one has been politically hostile to that argument, and two, it is a it's a global set of conditions that brings that about. Even if Australia were to, and this is the coalition's argument, even if Australia were to cease emitting any carbon emissions, the global temperature would continue to rise if everyone else just continued what they're doing. So, Yeah, of course. But I mean, obviously, uh, being in the camp that um, is sort of saying that it's all too hard enables other big polluters to continue to pollute um, at an ever-increasing um, rate. I guess what is kind of interesting to me about um, the fact that we even had this Royal Commission, I sort of said something about where we are at in the policy cycle um, uh, in this country where uh, we are increasingly resorting to royal commissions because um, what we're currently doing is not seem to be sort of meeting the needs of um, citizens or, or just simply um, the environment in this case. And so we need these sort of extraordinary um, 
you know, commissions or commissions that we feel that have lots of power to help us sort of gather the information. But I think one of the things that it was so alarming to kind of learn is that I think since 1930, we've had nearly 60 reviews into bushfires. And so it's not as if we don't really know what we need to do. It's just that we're not ever having the conversation around um, the fact that these are really quite complex governance processes. Because yes, you know, um, it is about emissions reduction, because that is the underlying threat that is driving the increase in risk. But what does that actually mean in policy terms? Well, in policy terms, that means how we manage land, to change. That is a very difficult set of problems, right? So that means, you know, changing the way farmers can or can't clear on their lands. It means changing the way regulations might work around how much uh, coverage of like tree coverage there is around um, creeks, you know, and so on and so forth to keep more moisture in in the actual soil and in the actual landscape um, for longer. Mm -hmm. But I think most people think land management means backburning. And so there's a real disconnect with um, what what everyone I think under kind of understands increasingly is the root cause and what that actually means and, a, and I guess a lack of um, government will to take on um, not only I guess the base assumptions of what is driving this phenomena but the very difficult politics of managing both public and private lands. A lot of this is managed by the state so it's actually a complex Governance problem. It is, isn't it? I mean, the, poli- the, the politics of this is quite interesting too, though, because the bushfires have, have affected that, that bushfire crisis of, ni- of, of, of the summer of 2019 20 um, was so extreme, so comprehensive that it has just sort of crashed this issue of climate change into the government. There was no way of avoiding it. And, and so, th- hence, we have the Royal Commission, we have this consideration of what can be done to reduce risk. In some ways, I can see why the Royal Commissioners would would list climate change as an issue but not go particularly far with it because, as you say, Mark, that's, uh, you know, that's outside their terms of reference but it's also outside the purview of the Royal Commissioners to make any particular recommendation on. I mean, they might make a recommendation that Australia should lead a more muscular international campaign for faster reductions in in greenhouse emissions. But beyond that, um, it's essentially all about mitigation. So I think they've given us a roadmap for adaptation. And, you know, we have spoken a few times previously. Mark has done such a huge amount of work on the need for mitigation and to stop burning fossil fuel and stop creating greenhouse gases. The other side of this is that our climate is changing and that even if we stopped burning fossil fuels today, we're up against a temperature change, which could be quite significant. And that roadmap of what we are going to need to do to contend with this increasing severity, intensity and duration of natural disaster risk that's sobering. And so, I, I mean, I, there's there's a lot of thought about this, I think, in climate advocacy circles as to whether we should only talk about mitigation or whether or not using adaptation as a motivator to, to then translate through to a mitigation strategy. It's really hard to read that report without wanting to do something about the underlying cause for climate change. And so I, I find it's implied in that report, and I think that's they are constrained by the terms of reference. 
But the roadmap that they provide is quite extraordinary, and it's extraordinary because it's got to be a whole-of-government response. It's got to go from federal government regulation right down to the local level, and it really has to go not just around our, our firefighting response and our emergency management response, but across all aspects of government, agriculture, the built environment, so that wonderful controversy about whether we should be building in coastal areas that are going to be subject to inundation and rising storms, a can that's been kicked down the road now for years in mm. terms of actually taking that decision-making. It's a recommendation in this Royal Commission report that, that, that the climate risks be built into local planning uh, decision-making. And so local government, federal government, state government, the relationships between the, the, the levels of government, and then the full breadth of impact you know, climate change and health is an interesting one, I find. And I, I, I wrote something about this today. Health is all the way through this report because every single part of this report response comes back to our human health and well-being. It's the sort of trauma that we're going to be confronted by through natural disasters and that increasing risk. It's how and where we live, who we live with, and how, how we structure our society in order to reduce those sorts of risks for both our mental and physical health. Yeah, Mark, it's really interesting The um, going to one of the points that Anna Greta makes there about you know the federation and the need for greater coordination. If, you, if we juxtapose that crisis with the one that's come along after, which is the COVID crisis in which we've seen, as we walk down here today to the studio, Maria and I were discussing, you know, federation and uh, some of the arguments for and against and how it works and how it doesn't work and, you know, whether some of the criticism is reasonable or not. But what we saw during the, the, the we've seen during the COVID crisis is the reassertion of state authority. What we're seeing out of this Royal Commission report in, in particular is one of the rec key recommendations is about a federal, a, a national power of uh, declaring an emergency and being able to move resources into uh, into a national emergency area. So it just shows this is uh, all, you know, there, there are currents going in both directions in, in this area. I, th I think that's right. Is there are stresses and strains that, that are expressed here. And, and that sort of view of, of emphasising the top-down um, contrasts quite a lot with other elements of the report which emphasise subsidiarity, which is actually um, pushing down responsibility as far as as it's appropriate, and yeah. so you know, much more a much a more local in, authority, yeah, yeah, you know, locally informed responses, yeah, and and in that sense, I think what we're seeing in terms of the fires and COVID and climate change is there is this uh, you know local knowledge, local responsibility, um, which effectively, if it meshes effectively with a top-down response is where you get the really big gains, and so so and and I would actually apply that equally to. To things like climate change, where where it's uh, you have to have high level policies uh, which encourage appropriate behaviour and support effective responses and informed responses, but you also need uh, buy in from people. You need people to have the capacity uh, to do, use that information wisely and to mesh it with all of the other interests that they have and are progressing. And so, so I actually think that there's strong ways in which you can map these three different things: fires, COVID, and climate change. The thing that's quite different between the two crises, though, the bushfires and then COVID is that uh, one of the key differences is that in climate, you, borders mean nothing. N even national borders mean nothing. Even even oceans separating continents can mean nothing in terms of the change in the, in the atmosphere. Whereas COVID, borders suddenly meant everything. You could actually stop the infection at your border if you were prepared to, you know, if you were WA or Queensland or whatever, you could just decide, well, that's it. No one's coming in. We're going to eradicate it in, in our local population and not allow anyone else in. So you've got two completely different 
dynamics, really, a, a, a sort of a meta threat in both cases, but one you could control locally in the case of COVID, and Australia has shown that it's now doing that as a nation. I mean, as of today, I think we've got no new infections in the mm. in the country. Victoria's just had another day of, you know, zero deaths, zero new infections. It's, a, it's an extraordinary public policy achievement. Um, but you don't have that luxury with uh, with climate change as an underlying condition for a for a bushfire threat. Yeah, look, entirely agree, and that issue of borders is is relevant. Um, and that, but that's why we talk about uh, climate change as a global issue that needs a global response. You know, the only effective response when it comes to emission reductions is a global response, and so we have to be not only part of that. I, I would argue we have to be leading that, and uh, and and I think that's where the tension lies. Is that we we have um, different views on what that role is that Australia should be um, playing here. I mean, We're- essentially there's just a vacuum at the at the top of government in terms of this entire um, policy space. It's, it's still not clear what the government's energy policy is, which is also code for its climate policy, right? Yeah. Um, and, and it's kind of interesting what you were saying about states, Mark, because um, it's true, right? Um, you can absolutely enforce a hard border because it's actually really easy comparatively to manage humans than it is to manage you know, climate or weather mm. um, um, because humans will respond to an instruction like that. Mm. Um, what is interesting, though, is because we've had now for about 25 years effectively a lack of government setting the parameters, right, which could enable states or local governments to sort of act in a coherent way in in the same direction, we've had states and local governments going their own way. And so we're so in this country we're really having a sort of bottom up policy process, which is not always a bad thing, but it does mean that you do get distortions and inco- inconsistencies and some incoherence in the way that Australia is managing climate change with states going their own way in terms of, you know, pursuing green energy or, um, you know, setting a climate limit or the fact that the Victorian state government had to respond to the fact that so many local governments were effectively wanting to manage it themselves. And local is good, but if you have too many different um, people pursuing very different and contradictory aims, it could just create chaos. And the way we see chaos manifesting in our system now is not only the, the climate threat that we're facing, but also the fact that power prices are high. They don't need to be this high. They're this high because the government has vacated that space because it couldn't solve a political issue internal to its party room. So, so I think those are really good points um, there. I guess that there again, there's a tension here. Is that in in an ideal world, we'd we'd have effective um, meshing of the bottom up and the top down responses. We haven't got an ideal world, and so that that uh, difference between you know local action uh, by individuals, by companies, by uh, local governments, by um, state governments. Even though it may foster some inefficiency, it also provides a buffer um, to lack of action at the top level. And so, so going back to the US, what we saw um, with uh, Trump stepping out of the, the climate agreement, the um, UNFCCC agreement, uh, Paris Agreement, uh, is that the states and and companies and individuals said, "Well, we're going to step up." And and because of the the massive size of some of those, like you know, California is a massive economy mm. in its own right. Is that that's a really non-trivial response, and so, uh, so I think even though um, that can foster some inefficiencies and, and chaos in extreme circumstances, it does actually provide a bit of a buffered system, and I think we actually need a bit of buffer to sort of offset some of the ups and downs that we see happening in politics. It's interesting, isn't it, Anna Greta? Because that is uh, the, the, the state stepping up is 
actually a bit of the COVID story as well. Uh, if you look at, as I say, what is arguably one of the greatest public policy achievements that we'll see in our lifetimes, the, the, the Australian management of COVID so far, it has largely been driven by the states. I mean, the, the Commonwealth certainly closed the international border initially with China, then belatedly with the US, which was by that stage the second greatest incoming source of um, of infection, uh, resisted doggedly resisted school closures, doggedly resisted a whole number of different elements of lockdown, certainly resisted state border closures. And all of these things have actually been instrumental in this great success story. So in well, a way... I mean, we, if you think about it, uh, is our national strategy now suppression or elimination? Now, nationally, they're still talking about suppression, but what have our states done? I think our states are achieving some version of elimination. Um, and I suspect we're all much more comfortable living in a world where we're using an elimination strategy. I think that's going to contribute in a really meaningful way to the sort of life that we can lead in Australia over the next couple of months and potentially years. Well, what's the, and that's been state leadership, not federal leadership. That's right. I don't think you see that at all from the Federal Department of Health. I think that's been very much driven at the state level. Uh, it's been one of the perhaps the advantages of our federal system um, because the states do have that power. Uh, but the lack of leadership federally, I wonder how that comes back into the politics of it. Um, well, I'm just, I'm fascinated because you make a very good point about the uh, the fact that most people would, most Australians would be happier, you know, sort of given a choice with elimination over suppression. And particularly so when you consider that, I mean, you think about what are the big costs of elimination? Well, you can't have people coming from overseas and you can't travel overseas. That's one of the uh, big costs. Well, we can't do it anyway. anyway. Exactly. So no. <laughs> when you think about why, if, if we can get to a level of functional elimination where there's the odd, you know, mistake made, the odd, uh, you know, infection that is instantly contained and so forth, people are going to be much happier with that. That's pretty much functional elimination. Absolutely. So so uh, last time uh, we spoke, I talked about the gratitude we should all have to Victoria, and I still reflect a lot on the trauma. Uh, my friends and family and so many people as they're coming out of lockdown, uh, it's been an extraordinary thing to put a population through. It's a textbook case of political leadership as opposed to following the the opinion polls or perhaps an easier pathway. I think yeah, the leadership that's been, I've it's been it. yeah <laughs> no um, and so so it, you know it's not not the sort of example of political leadership we've seen a lot in Australia in the last couple of decades, but it's been quite a remarkable undertaking. Perhaps the and Victorian I, government, to be complete about it though, didn't have any choice. I mean, it had bungled very badly the hotel quarantine program. So but they, I mean, so I think they could have chosen failure. to walk out of their lockdown down a month or so ago. And if they'd done that, we would have ongoing problems with infection, not not this elimination uh, option now. And so, yeah. so it was really, wasn't just taking that really hard decision at the beginning, it was actually staying the line. And what did they use to inform that decision making? They used really good me- medical modelling. Um, it's not perfect, but it's been extraordinarily accurate in terms it has, of... It hasn't the, it? I mean, it's sort of delivered that outcome of of um you know fewer than 5 on the 14 day rolling average yep. fewer than 5 new infections pretty much on the timeline that the modeling suggested and they're now at 1.9 as of today because of you know a couple of days of I think we've had five days now, four days of, of, of zero infections. It's, it really is. So we might not like the science, of but science, the science actually works. And look, it's the same with climate change. It's hard to decarbonize our economy. It's hard to, to see the behavior changes that might, might flow from that. 
it could be an extraordinary opportunity. I don't think it's a completely negative thing. In fact, I think there are tremendous advantages to it. Uh, but the science is really strong, that it, and that's what comes from the Royal Commission report, just to tie it back in, mm. is that if we don't take those difficult political decisions, if we don't see good quality leadership on climate change, understanding the science, using the science, using the reports that Mark has written so many times in the last couple of decades, take that science and work with it, because it's a biolog- it's a it's a you know it's a physiological uh, thing that we're experiencing. Um, it's that we can't change the science through political rhetoric. We need well, to act on it. No, I, I agree. Look, there's a dangerous level of common sense being spoken here, as well as great expertise, of course. Uh, let's uh, take a quick break, break and come back. And and uh, when we do so, I want to put that question to you, Mark, that about um, that Anna Greta just sort of dangled, and that was uh, th- this opportunity. Can we use, for example, the um, the extraordinary achievement that Australia has in managing this virus through the application of science and expertise, can we leverage that also into the climate space, change the message that we are taking to the world uh, world about climate? So we'll just take a quick break and come back and I'll uh, invite you to address that question. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week, we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive, and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Okay, welcome back. Now, Mark, let me uh, re-ask that question and invite you to, to uh, you know, turn your mind to it, and that is the whether we can parlay our extraordinary success, the application of science for the delivery of good policy outcomes. Australia hasn't really been able to do that or hasn't had the will to do it really in, in terms of climate change, not since the election of the coalition anyway. But is there an opportunity here to you know, to take that success and to say, look, this is what we can do. We can listen to expertise, we can draw up policy and we can take it to the world. We've got, I mean, people, the rest of the world's looking at Australia at the moment and going, wow, that's an extraordinary achievement on COVID. Well, it wasn't that long ago that Australia was actually seen as a a climate leader, a climate change leader, and uh, drawing on a combination of of uh, the research expertise, uh, the policy uh, focus that previous governments had um, but also the broad scale public support um, that that people had for for climate change, and in the intervening years, uh, what we've actually seen is uh, that public support has grown and grown substantially. So we see the vast majority of Australians now want action on climate change around about ninety percent, and so that's that's huge. Mm. Um, 
we, as we know, we've just ta- already talked about uh, the the sort of diminution of, of po- uh, policy from from various sources, but some re- rebuilding of that now from the state governments and uh, with with quite ambitious uh, emission reduction activities, particularly. And, that, and that's coming from both sides too, isn't it? I mean, it's not just Labor governments. Yeah, that's right. Well, climate climate shouldn't be a partisan issue. It's no. a, it's a, a fundamentally an environmental, an economic, and a human issue, mm. and and we should actually put aside the policy and start to uh, approach this in a very common sense way. And, Wouldn't that be nice? And, and, and it would be very helpful, I think. Mm. And That's the core of politics. <laughs> yeah, but politics isn't meant to wreck things. Like, And this is pretty existential. I mean, they don't, it doesn't come much more existential than this. Well, yeah, sure, but I think... I mean, I guess the first thing I'd want to say is like we should acknowledge that the federal government's economic response made the state's health response possible because... Without people knowing that they were going to be paid, could the states have necessarily enforced people to stay at home? So I think that is actually important to acknowledge that the federal government very much got that one right, even if, you you know, you can argue if they were late on other policy responses. But, you know, like, look, I mean, you're absolutely right. Climate change um, is an existential threat. It should be above politics, but ultimately all politics happens through um, appeals to emotion and the and the good life it's filtered through human stories um and so that's that's all sort of tangible things people can kind of touch or fear that they're going to um lose and so whilst it's absolutely true that most people want action on climate change the word action is the bit that people don't agree on is the problem politically though that that there's no global electorate. That is to say, I mean, we expect there's, there's accountability downwards from representatives to the people in relation to a whole lot of issues, including COVID, right? Because of the way, the way it can be managed. But the action that's required for global, a global effort on climate change, there's a, there's a break there. There's no accountability link. There's no way of getting other governments to act in ways that we need them to do. we It's this sort of ho- horribly indirect process where we need to try and convince our government to convince other governments to do more. Uh-huh. And if our government can't be convinced to do more, we, we, you know, we've got bugger all chance of sort of having any credibility with anyone else. Well, I, I think in some ways I don't think the, the, the lack of international infrastructure is the big problem. I think the big problem is... What are the economic interests that people perceive in their own countries to be the things that drive economic growth? I mean, in the UK, they're, they're celebrating the fact that it was like, you know, 100% wind power day or whatever it was, and they have no coal. It's because the coal industry there doesn't exist anymore. But they do have a you nuclear know. industry. Yeah, they do have a nuclear industry, right? But that's, I guess that's my point, right? Like, people perceive um, economic interests in this country uh, to be tied to, you know, mineral resources, to cheap coal. Uh, that's certainly the sort of way it's kind of um, framed. And it's always framed in a sort of loss construction, right? Like, these are the jobs we're going to lose. Um, you know, this is the economic prosperity that we're going to, to lose, even Which though... Which they're going to lose anyway. I mean... <laughs> well, yeah, that's so right. That, yeah, that that's, was that Deloitte exactly Access right. Economics report that was out today. Day that really looks at temperature rising and so that, you know, over the next couple of decades, it's actually going to be impossible to work outdoors in far northern Queensland. So, you know, that's, that's a biological challenge. You can't work when you're at 55 degrees for the day. And so that employment's gone. You can't work in a mine in that environment because of climate change. And I think that's the point, right? Like people are coming to understand that actually climate change means I uh, can't breathe in the summer. 
that it means that I can't work outside. But 10 years ago, when we were talking about the carbon tax, it's quite abstract. We're going to crash the economy. Um, you know, we're going to take away Australia's competitive advantage, which are all of these jobs that is, you know, the reason why I'm buying a car every two years or, or whatever, whatever it is. And it, the, that was also possible because the sort of landscape, I suppose, surrounding this policy discussion was full of um, people, you know, who who um, were either advocates or um, silent or um, supporting, I guess, the economic status quo. But now I think it's getting harder and harder for uh, the average kind of uh, worker who uh, may or may not be connected to the fossil fuel industry to sort of think that this lifestyle is sustainable when banks don't want to fund stuff, you know, when um, super funds are, are divesting. And so it's getting harder and harder for the government to keep that the issue frame on just the economic losses. Like the question will then become, well, if we're going to face this crisis, what are we going to do with all of these people's jobs you know and and that means it becomes about humans and human stories and human potential rather than a really abstract notion about future risks which people are really terrible at computing so is that, is that the, sorry Mark, but is that the um the the, the, the dilemma now that faces you know people who have been climate skeptics or, or resistors of action is that the future has arrived you know, um, we saw those fires in that's Greece. That's exactly of- what's in this Royal Commission report. Yeah. That that's the bit that I re- I really take away from it. Um, is, yeah. is that it's there? Okay, it's unavoidable. Yeah, I was going right to say we, we saw those fires yep. in Greece a few years ago, which were extraordinary. We've seen our own fires, of course, which is why we had the Royal Commission. We've seen what's been happening in California this year as well. In the intervening period, um, the intensity of these fires and the frequency of of catastrophic weather events, the future's arrived. Yeah, but that's been the case for a couple of decades now. Yeah, but you uh, could argue against it. You could argue, and people did successfully argue that. Well, you know, we've always had, you know, we had the Great Flood of nineteen fifty six or whatever it was, and they- we always have bushfires. Yeah. That was that was you know almost a year ago from today. Sorry, go on. And 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 that's true. But there's the the fingerprints of climate change on on these and other events have been very clear for twenty years. And so I wrote a report on this in nineteen ninety eight. And so it's it's not new. Um, I think it's the preparedness of people to um, receive those arguments and the clarity of the signal which has increased in that time so last year's fires being or this year's fires but it, being, it is the tragedy then that we almost have to get to a level of of undeniability that's that's beyond uh you know the, the the point that we needed to be making significant changes I think that politics has really got in the way here um, mm. because of the sort of partisan nature of it in some countries and not, not others. And and that's actually prevented those discussions, which are, are very sensible and common sense discussions, I think, from happening. Uh, I think it's really important, though, following on from other comments about the politics here, is that one of the things that we've learned from COVID and also from climate change is that where you have leaders who take on board the science, they actually gain politically. And so if you look at um, across the ditch in mm. New Zealand, mm. uh, you know, that's a, a huge win for Jacinda. And, and similarly, uh, um, Germany with Merkel with her response to the first wave of the pandemic, you know, went up in the polls. And so you could argue similarly with some of our, our own premiers here in Australia. Yeah. And so, so where you start to get, uh, 
um, a politician who can take on board the science, um, who can process that and to deliver that in sensible policy outcomes with a narrative that people can buy into, then you actually can start to move forward on these issues and start to put aside some of the polarisation. What would change – I mean, I'm just thinking, what would change, like, in the, in, if you think about it in the political frame, what event could really significantly change this? Would it be a significant – long-term conservative sceptic coming out in this within Australia. I'm not talking about someone internationally and saying, look, we've had, all, we've had this wrong, I've had this wrong, we need to act. It, 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 would that be the kind of thing that might change, you know, take if, if John, not saying John Howard would, but I mean, let's face it, John Howard was actually proceeding toward an ETS um, in 2006-7 before he, he lost office. Who knows whether he would have delivered it, but that was where it was going with the Shergold report and so forth. I'm just wondering, what, what do we need to sort of break it out of this toxic taxonomy, if I could put it like that? Look, uh, it's, it's an interesting proposition. I suspect what would happen is that person would very quickly be marginalised um, by the people who wanted to maintain uh, climate scepticism. Well, we see what happens with Matt Keane in, in New South Wales. Uh, the, the environment minister there is uh, certainly the enemy of a lot of people in the Liberal this Party. This is why this report is interesting, because if we now go around to every uh, regional town which is vulnerable to heatwave, to flood, to fire, and we start to build the infrastructure that protects us against natural disasters... This puts it in front of and uh, front and center. You know, it's on the main street of the of the the town that you're living in. Everybody in the community has got their disaster plan ready. Why? Because the climate is changing. Because it is getting hotter. Because living here is becoming more dangerous. And I think that shifts the politics. I think that gets really hard to ignore when there's a disaster plan for each town that's being used. Maybe maybe only once or twice in each decade, but much more frequently than it was. I mean, I think we're already sort of seeing shifts, right? Like, I, I think the the we've moved from climate denialism to climate minimization, which is where that adaptation story comes in, right? Well, yeah, yeah, climate change is happening, but you know, we, we'll just use technology to adapt. Yeah. Don't need to worry about it. Everyone just stay calm. You know, we, we'll still keep selling our coal because it's the better coal, right? It's cleaner or or, or whatever. <laughs> yeah. um, and you can kind of see that in the sort of subtle sort of shifts the prime minister is making because I think. He does recognise that because ninety percent of people want action on climate change, that he has to sort of shift, and he has the authority in his party room to sort of slowly change his um, language uh, around this. Even though I don't think any any one of us expect him to come out and say that you know climate change is um, real, which he does. He says all the time, and therefore I'm going to restructure the entire economy. Like he's not going to say the second part, right? Um, and so the politics of it is already shifting because of all of these things that have that have happened to us. I think the the pandemic is kind of interesting in so far as it um, has kind of given more space to the the minimization chorus to sort of say, well, not yet or not now because it's there are too many things that are um, you know at risk or whatever. But there are so much, so many unknowns by this big exogenous shock to the global economy that and because we're already seeing financial markets respond to the fact that these are old technologies and you shouldn't invest in them because you're not going to make money, right? Um, which is why we're seeing right-wing governments increasingly interested in these things because it, they want the economy to function, right? Follow the money. It, precisely. Um, so so we might just find that even though that argument is there, we shouldn't do it just yet, um, 
that that we sort of see these processes happen anyway because there's simply not the critical mass to support them, right? And that's sort of some of the gas stuff we're seeing. That said, we still have politics being played out. As we, as I said in the introduction, we, we're, we're on the cusp of the US election. Donald Trump has very, very aggressively played this division, uh, you know, uh, saying that fossil fuels and that, that, that whole sector and your cars and everything else, you know, Biden and the and the left radical Democrats want to take all these things away, so he's appealing very strongly to that. We could see that um, Anastasia Palaszczuk has made a um, you know won an election uh, by winning back a number of those sort of blue collar uh, energy sector um, or coal and coal mining uh, regions uh, in Queensland, uh, winning them back from from One Nation or their drift to the LNP. So there's still some electoral power in this to be leveraged, and I guess we'll wait and see what the, what the US outcome is. But I wonder, Mark, whether what, what you think about this, whether if the left, if the right has not done enough on climate change, just to put it in crude terms, not, you know, not being prepared to act with sufficient haste, has the left also failed in some ways to understand the loss and the dislocation associated with the transformation and just perhaps not sold that story and not been you know active enough in in um, addressing the human cost of that transition in the economy I, th- I think there's an element of truth in that and and certainly after the the last federal election there was a a lot of um, dissection of what had happened and that was one of the conclusions that uh, that people have felt left behind uh, when when discussions of transitions had occurred yeah. and and so so one of the things with humans is we tend to to um, value loss more than we do value gain and we 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 prioritize uh, um, you know the different things slightly differently, and and so so I don't think uh, we had a sufficient narrative on the positive side because as that Deloitte um, uh, study that was referred to um, before uh, that's just come out has, has said if if you're actually pro growth if you're pro jobs then we need to respond to climate change, yeah. uh, if focusing on the opportunities or at least avoiding the opportunity cost of of uh, not responding to climate change, and so so I think. A, a different narrative, which is actually about building a better Australia, which includes necessity for change, but how we won't leave people behind and we, we can build opportunities for people to not only has use their existing fairly, skills, but, but actually build on those. It has to be convincing though, doesn't it? Has it? To I be mean, people, people aren't interested in, or they're not convinced by, you know, we're going to have a green economy and there'll be, there'll be jobs in, you know, the solar industry or whatever. It may not cut much ice. I can use that inappropriate term in Townsville. Um, so you have to find other, you have to find very convincing ways of, of, um, of you know, having them understand what their future role is, where they are located in in that future economy. Yeah. I wonder, so, uh, so, you've seen Labor with with its uh, sort of gas compromise in recent days to describe gas as the transition fuel of the future and gas has got a role. Any thoughts on that? Just, so just before I go into that, just yep. responding to your previous uh, comment, uh, look, I do think it has to be convincing. Um, it has to be really long-term, um, which means it has to be uh, – it can't be partisan. It has to actually be bipartisan or tripartisan these days. Wouldn't that be nice? Um, and uh, and so, so I think – 
um, there has to be some confidence that we're with you in, mm. in terms of that transition. Uh, the fact that is that Australia has done this before. We've done that with Newcastle and Wollongong as examples, and uh, and you know both both of those cities are, are much more enjoyable cities to live in. They've uh, found new industries and new ways of of uh, um, employment, um, new opportunities, <clears throat> and so so. That, but those things don't happen by accident, or they don't automatically happen by accident. So it's about making that long-term commitment, having a plan and having a vision and having buy into that vision. Mm. Now, in terms of of the gas side of things, um, no, I don't find it convincing. Um, the the sort of gas as a transition fuel was was a, essentially part of analyses done in the 1990s. Uh, it, it, it is still part of a transition, um, but, it, but the role in the transition is much, much smaller than we were conceiving, say, two or three decades ago, uh, where it was a major part of a transition from coal to renewables. And uh, and it's not – this isn't about ideology. This is just about markets, is that gas is relatively expensive. It still is a greenhouse uh, um, gas, you know, so you, you produce lots of greenhouse emissions from it. It's about 60%, and, isn't it, or something? Well, there's different analysis of that. So so at the point of combustion, it's roughly um, 50% as much CO2. But then there's emissions in the transport, uh, yeah. in the pipelines, um, yeah. and also in the extraction. And and depending on the numbers, it's actually uh, – different studies have different numbers, but it's quite a lot more than the 50% when yeah. you add that in. And it's not that much cleaner than decent coal when you do that. So uh, so what I, I sort of think of is that idea of gas as a transition fuel is is essentially a stranded idea, just like um, we've got stranded assets which may occur. Um, stranded idea, I like yeah. that. But, so, it's, but it, is a, it is a fuel source that you can turn on and off quickly. So if you have gas turbines, gas-fired turbines, they can – Produce energy quite quickly if the wind's not blowing and the sun's not shining, as Scott Morrison's very fond of saying. Gas can operate as that ballast in the system for sinuous energy that production, and it can respond quickly. But batteries can respond much more quickly, and yeah, but and not for very long. No, but the thing is that you and and AEMO have done there's analysis of this. You actually don't need a lot of batteries in your system, or, or you know, backup of of different types to actually have a stable system. Once you have sufficiently distributed solar and wind uh, um, assets, which are connected effectively, right? And 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 that's because. A simple thing we hear about when the wind don't blow. Well, the wind, if the wind's not blowing in one place, it's because it's blowing somewhere else. That's, that's the basic physics of the system. And, and so, so as long as you've got sufficiently distributed wind assets, it's going to be blowing somewhere. And mm. so you just pick that up where it's actually generating the electricity and transport that to where it's needed. All right. Well, look, this has been a terrific discussion. Let's, before we go, just go to the Queensland election. Uh, Maria, what did you take from it? Were you surprised by the result? I mean, um, did you, did you, uh, the border was of the border closure and, and all of that, the politics of it, quite interesting, really. The, the, the more attacks that were made on Anastasia Palaszczuk, the stronger she got with voters, it seems. Well, I think, you know, um, she definitely stuck to her guns and, no one is in any doubt that she'll defend uh, Queenslanders, I suppose. <laughs> um, yeah, I was su- I was surprised. I thought it would be uh, closer, um, but that's Queensland for you. It is I- volatile, isn't it? I- it politically swings a lot. It is. It is. It is volatile. I mean, though, like the um, even though the swing was huge, a five percent swing, it translated into a small number of of seats. But um, you know, it is an it's an extraordinarily um, important win. 
um, for Anastasia Palaszczuk. She's now won three elections in a row. She's the first female leader in this country to do that. Yeah. Um, it was an, another significant milestone was that no matter who won that election, it would have been another, it would have been transitioned from one female leader to, to another. Yeah. But I think what that election actually shows and the tragedy of Australian politics is that there's really not much money or um, resources dedicated to state elections. So we don't have very good survey data at all, which is the only way you can really know what people really think. Um, but it sort of does seem to indicate that voters do understand the difference between federal and state powers and jurisdictions, which sort of reflects why Labor tends to win at state elections and the federal government tends to win nationally. Yes, that's right. In Queensland, very uh, long run. That's right. In Queensland, Labor can do well in the state and do very poorly indeed out of the 30 seats, 30 uh, House of Reps seats in Queensland. Yeah. With just three or four of them. Yeah, because voters understand that Queensland Labor will run their hospitals and schools, which they trust Labor to do, and the federal government will run the economy, which they trust the federal government, which they trust the coalition to do. And I think that is something that we sort of forget um, in this country. So I, I think, I guess what I'm really saying is like, you shouldn't read into this uh, federal um, implications um, because the last time we did that, we lost a prime minister. So. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, any uh, any observations uh, about the Queensland election? Were you surprised, uh, Anna Greta? I think it's a good win again for people. Uh, the the factors that Maria's just highlighted that people like government that takes care of them, that provides the adequate level of support and protection. Um, and so, and I think in my optimistic moments, I think, look, we're looking at a series of electoral results in recent time where people aren't afraid that the new normal is different, that we're, it's okay for governments to take responsibility for what's happening now and to look to doing things differently into the future. And so certainly I was deeply uh, given a lot of hope from the ACT and from the uh, New Zealand elections that we're not, we're not voting with fear, we're voting with hope for a better future. Although there was a fair fear component in yep. it as well in terms of keeping the border closed. The Queen, That's so the Queensland election probably doesn't fit into that particular It does a model. bit though. It does yeah. a bit though because there were two extraordinarily good aspects to it in my view. Hmm. One was that Clive Palmer spent millions <laughs> and got nothing for it. Didn't even get a percentage point of the of the vote. And the loss of one nation vote um, and, and, is one, also... and one nation's vote yep. crashed yep. humiliatingly. Yep. You know, I mean, it's a joke of a party, of course, but it was um, it was lovely to see Fantastic. such that you know populism basically became unpopular. Yep. And uh, that was uh, a rewarding outcome. Look, I, I agree with that. And I think it did demonstrate that uh, if, if you don't look after your people, um, then they will, they'll desert you. And that's, I think, part of that story with um, One Nation and, and Palmer. And, mm. uh, but the converse is, is where you actually have the Premier saying, we've got your back in different ways, actually re resonates, as, and particularly if it's said sincerely with, with uh, in a policy backup rather than just empty rhetoric. Yeah, and it was really interesting that we've got your back actually meant we've got your back against the federal government. I mean, you know, Scott Morrison spent a week in Queensland. He, I, I heard him just last week chiding Albanese for not having mm. been there and not being welcome there. Yeah. The plane um, broke down to keep him there. Of course, we know uh, Morrison and several of his ministers, Dutton particularly, piled on the pressure on the, gov on the Queensland government saying that, you know, you have to open your border and, you know, get the economy going again and so forth. And as I said before, I think this actually fed 
um, uh, um, Anastasia Palaszczuk's strength. It made her look tougher. Every time she said, no, I'm not doing it, I'm, I'm, I've got a choice here between doing what you want to do or protecting Queenslanders, I'm going to protect Queenslanders. Every time they, they said that, that was like they were bowling long hops to her, you to put it in cricket parlance. She was just <laughs> smacking it over the fence with this, uh, you know, with this response. So, yes, it did um, – it was it was quite an interesting election. We'll see what happens with, of course, the big one. You know, the the doozy, of course, is the United States. I know it's another country and all that, but we we we, we all are interested in that. So I guess we'll. But we all have a stake in it too, in a way, which is a bit disturbing, but true. Yeah, that's true. Well, look, thanks so much for um, chewing the fat with us on these on these very important issues. It's been really enjoyable. I hope uh, listeners have enjoyed it as well. So Mark Howden, Anna Greta Hunter and Maria Taflaga, thanks for being with us again on Democracy Sausage. Uh, I'll be back later in the week uh, with something which I haven't got the list in front of me and I can't remember what it is, but it's going to be really good, I'm sure. It's going to be great. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the last one, of course, was I, – I, I should have spoken with you about this, Maria, because uh, we, we, of course, had um, – Keith Dowding's, um, you know, it's the government stupid book uh, for a discussion, and that was um, that was really interesting. I'm not exactly sure why he... the government is responsible for your bad choices. <laughs> it's it's a it. provocative title, but it was uh, it was it was really rewarding to talk to him, and I strongly recommend that people either listen to the podcast or ideally listen to the podcast, but also uh, get get hold of Keith's book. It's a because skinny book. It is. It's yeah. a skinny book, but it's uh, got some very good ideas in it, and. Uh, that's a pretty winning combination as far as I'm concerned. Perfect, absolutely. <laughs> All right, that's it for Democracy Sausages this week. See you again very soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.